if something true can be understood about art, something will be understood about liberty, too, and science and politics and history, because everything in the universe is unfolding together with the purpose of which mine is a part. You are right to laugh at me because I don't know German or French. But the truth of idealism would be plain to me if I had heard one sentence of shelling shouted through my window by a man on a galloping horse. When philosophers start talking like architects, get out while you can, chaos is coming. When they start laying down rules for beauty, blood in the streets is from that moment inevitable. Welcome to the Big Readcast. Uh, this is a podcast where one of us is a reformist and one of us is a revolutionary, and we will not <laughs> tell you which one is which. Uh, I'm Joel. I'm Bill. Uh, thanks for <laughs> thanks for tuning in. I was gonna say I don't know why. <laughs> um, thanks for listening. To if uh, if you haven't heard this uh, podcast before, uh, this is just me and Bill reading big books this week. Uh, this week, oh, Bill, it's gonna be a long podcast. Hey, I'm excited. Oh, my little dogs are upset about your error. That's how they oh feel about God. this. I have okay. neighbors, and they can't bear this. Um, well, who can bear neighbors? That's the real question I wanted. I Actually, that's can't. that's pretty apropos of this of this of this text that we just read. <laughs> yeah. So this episode, um, we decided to read Tom Stopper's trilogy of plays, uh, "The Coast of Utopia." Uh, the first play is "Voyage." The second play is "Shipwreck." The third play is "Salvaged." Um, it's about the Russian in, uh, intellectuals of the mid 19th century and sort of, you know, the year of 1848, all the revolutions and kind of the consequent, you know, uh, I don't know, kind of the consequent intellectualization of revolution in Russia under the kind of oppressionist Tsar or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did read the thing. Okay. Um, so yeah, so we did plays. It's a pretty pretty long uh read for a play but pretty short read for everything else we've read um and yeah i thought we would just start out with something that would be more fun than usual bill because we had a little pre-conversation <laughs> and i'm gonna make you do it up front i think we awesome. had different reactions to this text <laughs> i think we did and it's not the first time we've had slightly different reactions but i think we had more divergent reactions to this than we have in the past we did yes. so so I wanted to. I guess that, that maybe maybe we'll we will shove it for a little bit. It's a preview, but let's. Uh, more than usual, I feel like this. Oh yeah, I should also say, um, in addition to the plays, uh, Bill read more of it than I did, but we also read um, Isaiah Berlin's Russian Thinkers, which Tom Stopper, the playwright, was very explicit about. Russian Thinkers, a collection of essays on Russian intellectuals is basically the guiding light of his plays um, to, to the point that like. You were joking at one point that, you know, reading both simultaneously is kind of hard because you forget which text gives you which quote or whatever. Yeah. Um, but that was kind of supplementary. We'll get to that later. But so, yeah, so I kind of give a pseudo introduction. But do you want to say more about what we just went through <laughs> as readers? <laughs> yeah. So for a little context, The Coast of Utopia is a trilogy of plays, but it was always intended to be done pretty much, maybe not literally in the same day, but very quickly, like one after the other. You would never, I think, just do one of them. He, he says they are theoretically self-contained, and sure, but I think you would really always want to do yeah. all three of them. Uh, he first 
he wrote them and published them in 2002. There was a British uh, production in 2002, and then there was a Broadway production in 2006, which actually has the record for the most Tony Award wins of any play. Uh, the Coast of Utopia won seven Tonys, was nominated for ten, and seven is the most Tony Awards any play has ever won. So uh, this is a pr- pretty well-regarded play, at least when it came out. I don't know how w- how well it survived in sort of the theater canon at this point. I honestly don't know. Uh, but it was at least very well-respected in 2007. Um, interestingly, I want to talk about the cast just really briefly because it's kind of fun. Uh, yeah, this had Ethan Hawke, Billy Crudup, David Harbour, Jennifer L., and Martha Plimpton, among other people. So there were some pretty real people in this. Um, so yeah, it's three plays. Uh, it's They span from about 1833 to about 1861, I think. Is that right? No, a little after 1861. Um, like 65, maybe. Yeah, Let me, around there. Um, and the th- the he, he previously had joked that he was writing one play about Mikhail... Bakunin, one play about Vissarion Belinsky, and one play about Alexander Herzen. And that's not quite what they end up being, but they're still sort of a different focus from play to play. Um, probably the best way to talk about it is to talk about maybe the four major intellectuals and then sort of hint at the plot, because I think that's probably a more honest yeah. way of dealing with them. It's definitely so character-focused, yeah. Yeah, so we got, we got I, I want to say four major people, although there are several, there's a lot of characters in the play. I think there's 70-some-odd named characters total, uh, intending to have many you know, multiple actors play, or one actor play multiple parts throughout the course of the trilogy. Um, the Probably the, we might call the overall hero of the trilogy, that's reductive, but sort of maybe the most main character is Alexander Herzen, who is a Russian thinker, surprisingly. They're all Russian thinkers. But <laughs> is a, uh, I think he's called the moder- the father of Russian socialism, depending on who you ask. Um, yeah, he was, the uh, first Russian socialist, supposedly. Yeah, sort of revered by the later Soviet Union, although as both Stoppard and Berlin suggest, that might not really make any sense. Um, who was like imprisoned fairly quickly and then exiled from Russia and spent the rest of his life outside of Russia writing novels and then also running several sort of subversive newspapers out of out of London, including The Bell was the big one, um, which appears to have had some hand in helping uh, with the liberation or the emancipation of the serfs in 1861 under... Tsar Alexander II, is that right? Shoot, one of the Tsars. Uh, and then, so certainly was a big deal in Russia at the time. Um, he, he's sort of the star of the second plays in particular, but he has a small role in the first one as well. He's kind of a, I hesitate to call him a moderate because he's certainly still a radical or a revolutionary, but compared with many of the other characters, he's he's more of a moderate. He's much less interested in sort of the grand historical teleological narratives about how things are necessarily going to happen. He's kind of skeptical about that sort of version of the sort of Hegelian worldview that some of the other right. characters buy into pretty... I mean, they're all Hegelians to some extent, but he's not as into some of the sort of, uh, you know, inexorable march of history stuff. That's not a Hegelian quote. I think that's somebody else, but it's, you get the point. Um, probably the second major character is Michael or Mikhail... I think it's Bakunin is how you say it. Um, I don't speak Russian, and if I mispronounce the Russian, don't tell me. I don't care. Don't, uh, don't, so. <laughs> don't email us. We know we messed it up, okay? We're sorry. <laughs> Um, but, uh, Bakunin is kind of, a he's a revolutionary in the literal sense. He seems to change his mind about which particular philosopher he's in love with minute to minute. He's sort of flighty and he's the one who's getting in the most trouble of all of the sort of main characters. He spends most of the second and part of the third play in jail. And so when he appears, it's just kind of a, not literally a hallucination, but sort of a projection across time to talk about, uh, to talk to, uh, to Herzen. And he's kind of flighty, and he's sort of comic relief. I wouldn't say it's exactly right, because he's also taken somewhat seriously, but he has a lot of the punchlines in the plays, particularly in the first one. 
Yeah, um, definitely. Third, there's Vasarian Belinsky, who is, uh, he died relatively young, and everyone who ever met him was just madly in love with him, basically. He had tremendous influence on Herzen uh, Turgenev, who's the fourth guy I'll talk about in a minute, Bakunin and others. Um, and he was, a, he was a literary critic, at least theoretically. Uh, one of the things that Berlin and Stoppard both talk about is how much of the political agitation was done through literature and literary criticism because outright political discussion was censored and banned. Um, and so Belinsky talks a lot about throughout the plays of having a, you know, a desire for Russian literature. We don't have any Russian literature. We need to have it other than Pushkin, he says. And so his whole deal is that he's actually, whereas the others are all relatively wealthy, at least in background, he actually came from kind of a, not a serfdom, but a lower middle class kind of background. He doesn't read any languages other than Russian. And so he's, he's a very forceful personality. Everyone's very impressed with him, but he's not actually the most sort of articulate, even as everyone's in love with his writing. And the fourth is Ivan Turgenev, or Turgenev, which is it, do you know? I don't know. Um, no, who I is have no idea. <laughs> one of the most celebrated Russian writers of the 19th century, even today, I, th I think I think a lot yeah, of people he... would say it's like Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and Turgenev, and then later Chekhov. I think a lot of people would say that's the pantheon. I guess I don't know for sure. but No, he's still, yeah, he's definitely in the pantheon. I mean, th there's no doubt. Like, Gogol, him, same era, but he, he, right. he has, I think, Gogol, yeah, yeah, he... Yeah, he's definitely survived, beyond survived. Um, and he's, I think, that come up in this and that are, that I'm mostly, I haven't read any of him, but my understanding is it's The Sportsman's Sketches, which is a collection of short stories, and then uh, the book Fathers and Children, which comes up in the in the plays as well. Uh, he's, he's an artist. First, he's a revolutionary and a radical, but he's also very interested in sort of, I don't want to say art for art's sake, because he actually disclaims that, but that sort of approach. He's always getting yelled at from people on both sides both the conservatives and the radicals for ticking them both off because he's primarily interested in painting reality as it is rather than necessarily trying to make a partisan argument on any given moment. And so he is not, I think, as important a character in some ways, but he's always sort of hovering around the edges of it. And I think if any character speaks for Stoppard, I mean, none of them do, but to the extent someone does, it seems to me it's more likely to be Turgenev. I definitely, oh, totally. I think, I think it's interesting because I think, um, I think Herzen is like the hero of the plays, I think because of Berlin's influence, right? Like the introduction to the Berlin yeah. that we both have, I, I think we both have the same one, you know, Eileen Kelly. Classics. Yeah. Yeah. Penguin classes. Eileen Kelly talks about that. Like if a hero emerges in Berlin's various essays about Russian thinkers, it's clearly Herzen. And I think that's Stoppard's driving kind of dramatic instinct for the plays. But I completely agree as far as like Stoppard's own beliefs, if they come through, um, there's a passage maybe we'll get to later in our favorite bits part. I'm not even sure it's a favorite bit, but like where, yeah, Turgenev seems to, seems to represent the artist who is both political, but, you know, kind of won't sacrifice sort of an aesthetic ideal, even in the face of trying to change the world or whatever. But so I will say, you know, it seems like a pretty, <laughs> it seems like a pretty packageable set of ideas and characters for a podcast. <laughs> um, I don't feel like we've, I don't think we've bitten, I mean, Black Lamb and Grey Falcon was obviously a bigger, uh, far more unwieldy book, but I do feel like the plays themselves are sort of wild, which we'll get to, um, especially because I want to hear about maybe your frustrations. But uh, I think the the you know the subject matter period, like more than ever, I feel like at least I don't know if you feel this way, pretty over my head in a lot of ways. Not um, intellectually per se, but just like it's such specific context and such specific history. And I will say for me, I think it's it's really fun to dig into. But I also um, it's also almost hard to know 
what the entry is, you know, to discuss each various thing. Um, the entry that I want to suggest is that uh, you talked about liking in a, in a, in a pre behind the scenes conversation. Uh, Enjoy <laughs> you talked the about, sneak behind the curtain of the uh-oh. big recast. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't believe it, but we're friends in real life. <laughs> what? No, we can't. We can't do that. That 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 taints the whole endeavor. We can't admit that. <laughs> <laughs> no, we can't. This is how our friendship exists: is through the podcast. Um, no, so I just I want so I I wanted to kind of because I we so we talked about it also in our little pre conversation that like in some ways I I may have tamped down some of my criticisms um, of N K Jemison's trilogy definitely the the second book especially not out of any fear but just because like, I think it can be uninteresting to just rail against something you know especially when I think there is you know quality things to talk about in it but I I kind of want to give I guess you the chance. <laughs> to do exactly what I didn't do, which is maybe unpack what was frustrating to you about um, the Stoppard experience. Okay, so a couple of disclaimers. The first is, I haven't read any other Stoppard. So I have not read Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. I have not read Arcadia or any of the other plays. So I don't have a lot of context for this. And also going in, I don't know much about mid-19th century Russian thinkers. I, uh, <laughs> so, you know, there's a moment towards the end of the third play when Turgenev meets a character who's sort of the prototype for the most important character in his great novel, Fathers and Children, right? Right. And this is clearly a moment of great import. And I had only heard about, I mean, I knew the novel existed, but I knew nothing about it. So the only thing, only context I had was what I had just read in an Isaiah Berlin essay, you know, 20 minutes before. And so he meets this guy and he's like, what shall I call you? And he says, Bazarov. And it's like, dun, 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 this is the big moment. (laughs) And I can't decide if that's really a, you know, it didn't, it fell flat for me, but that's probably just because I haven't, I don't have any context for this, right? It'd be like if you did a play about Shakespeare and he met an indecisive young man and he said, what's your name? And he said, Hamlet, fade to black. I feel like it would still be pretty cheesy, but it would at least have some context that I would appreciate in a way I didn't necessarily for this. The other disclaimer I want to say is I read this pretty quickly. I read it all kind of, not in one sitting, but like in one evening. And I'm not sure, I'm torn as to whether that was the right way to do it. Because on the one hand, you know, you never get as much time maybe when you blitz through something. On the other hand, these are plays, which you do not get to go back and revisit in the middle of doing. And at least in the initial uh, premiere in England, they did it all at once. They did a 12-hour run. So including lunch breaks, 12 hours, the whole thing, wham, bam, bam. Um, So, you know, it's possible that once I got the momentum about halfway through the second play when I was like, I kind of hate this, you know, it's hard to get away from I didn't put it down and take a break. So it may be that if I ever read it again, I will feel differently. Right. Uh, so that's a lot of disclaimers for, I don't know, I uh, I don't hate this. Like I, I definitely has some really good stuff in it. He's very good dialogue. I don't think if you could point to any scene, I don't think I'd be able to say this is a bad scene. I just found particularly the second two plays, I wasn't really sure what they added up to, and it feels very disjointed. We just kind of jump across years of time to have these little moments without any context, without, without with little context between the moments, right? So we'll skip a year and a half and suddenly everyone's in a different place, and all of the interesting action has happened off stage, which I understand is a theatrical philosophy some people believe in, and, you know, with, with some justice, you know, Oedipus works, right? Uh, but I, I found towards the end of it that I had seen scenes from the lives of these people without much of a through line and without much context, and where many of the scenes became very samey to me after a while. I was just like, didn't we already do this? Didn't we have this exact Didn't we say this? <laughs> and I didn't care about any of the characters very much, any uh, other than Belinsky, who is dead halfway through the second play. He was the only person I really felt like I cared about as a character. And this is partly because 
most of the characters are basically sort of philosophical, like mouthpieces, slide shots, yeah, uh, or mouthpieces. And I don't, I didn't actually find Stoppard's description of the philosophies terribly moving. And maybe that's partly because I was simultaneously reading an essay series which breaks them down in more detail. That might be part of it that I was like, well, this feels like a precy of what I was just reading, but. I never really felt them very believable, and I also never felt that they were really often an interesting philosophical contrast with each other. For what ought to be a play about different ways of looking at revolution, I felt like for the majority of them, it was just Stoppard saying, Herzen's right, these other guys are jerks. And I found that pretty unmoving, I guess. It felt very much like pounding a drum. Also, and I just have one other thing I want to say real quick, sorry, is a woman bursts into tears in this play every other page, and I got really tired of it. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. Well, so I was just going to pause, the only reason I wanted to pause, so you can keep going on more tangents, because I I just wanted to pause, though, because I actually agree that, so I was excited to read this play partly as an excuse to, like, to buy the Isaiah Berlin, (laughs) (laughs) because I I wanted to buy it for a while, and, like, one of the deals with my wife is that this makes our marriage sound terrible. <laughs> Even just saying my wife, I feel terrible about what's going to come next. But um, but yeah, it's like I'm not supposed to be buying a lot of books right now because I keep buying too many books. But I can buy <laughs> books for the podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's an agreement we have. Anyway, so um, but actually, I I do almost regret pairing them because I think that um, I read most of the Berlin first. And then the stopper. And I, I read everything a lot more spread out than you did, it sounds like. I, I did read the plays individually, and then I set it aside for like a day and came back to it. So I, I read like the third play today. Um, but I, I, you, but you're, you use the word, you know, like, uh, pressy, I think, right? Or whatever. Um, How are you? I, uh, an abstract, yeah. Yeah, well, that's, I know. That's why I didn't want to say it again, because I was like, <laughs> is the S silent? I just, I read these I, words. I don't say these words. I'm not sure which one of us is right, or if it's some third thing. Again, don't tell me. I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> please don't tweet at us. We don't know. Everyone, yeah. Anyway, um, the point being is, so the, you know, the, the, the dumber Joel version of that was actually, I think I wrote a note one point where it was like, um, this at times can read like the cliff notes of Berlin as opposed yeah. to maybe a robust uh, encounter with Hegelian, you know, diamat, right? Or whatever, right? That like these kind of robust, the robustness that I think Stoppard wants to be there. Um, I think he has an obsession with uh, sort of like forward momentum, you know what I mean? Where like characters always have to be like, there has to be like some kind of weird tension or overlap of time, or it has to be some kind of weird like family dynamic that is interrupting the philosophy. And I really like that partly because my guess is that um, these like every play, but uh, I think that um, some of the stuff that you, like in notes that we see each other, some of this, like the women, women crying too much was annoying, but actually I think some of the melodrama, I think it's supposed to be comedy. I think a lot of the, like the arguments and like a lot of the overtop reactions, I think it's supposed to be kind of like a, a Wodehouse type, almost farce at times. You know what I mean? Um, and I think how you stage it, which I know is kind of a cop out defense, but like, I do think how you stage it is everything because my other great criticism that I would agree with is everything important action wise does happen off stage. Even like, uh, there's a line at one point where Herzen's wife says, um, the bus was full of corpses, right? They're in France. Um, right after the 1848 revolution has gone to hell and um, you know we get this idea that like things are bad but of course nothing is shown except that of course in a in an actual staging you know a lot can happen outside of dialogue where like you walk through a scene of dead bodies you know what i mean um 
Which is not to like that, that's not my I, I, again. I don't think I'm not, I'm not sure he needs that defense because actually I think what I liked about reading the plays was in some ways it was like um, everything fun in a novel sort of like put into a concentrated powder that you then let's say snorted <laughs> to get high. I feel like whenever <laughs> whenever I read a play, um, whether it's like Lorraine Hansberry or Stoppard or whatever, a play with like a lot of punchy dialogue, not Beckett basically. Um, there's a, <laughs> which is not, I mean, I like Beckett. He's good, whatever. But like, but there's a way in which someone like Stoppard or Lorraine Hansberry, who are working more in a mainstream uh, model, despite being sort of cutting edge in their own ways. I, I, to me, like there's something that really, that's really fun about like, oh, you're just doing all of the, the really exciting parts. You know what I mean? Like, and the, the, the criticism I had attached to that was like, except for like all of the revolutions you're talking about are completely invisible. Um, which I, you know, I guess is I, I'm just giving you more evidence. <laughs> well, I, I think to one extent the revolutions being off stage makes sense because, of course, Herzen lived nowhere near the revolutions for most of his life, other than well, after he, the 1848 French one, which we do see uh, some. Uh, and he, uh, and, well, and he actually misses that. Right? He comes back from Italy to catch the end of it or whatever. So he that's actually, right. Yeah, he only catches he the it. end of it. That's right. Um, but you know, he's not there for the emancipation of the serfs and all of the sort of ways that goes well and badly. And so I, I get the desire to keep that off stage, but it's actually not just that that happens off stage. A lot of the interesting familial stuff happens off stage. Herzen tore it. So in the second play, Herzen's married to this woman, uh, Natalie, or is it Natalia? Damn it. Uh, well, so well, yeah, no, there's, there, couple, it's, there's three characters with very similar names. <laughs> yeah. So no, actually, so his first wife is Natalie, but the woman he shacks up with is also named Natalie, but goes by Natasha. Right, and there's another Natalie, which is Natalie Beyer, who only appears in the first play, and that's why I'm trying... Regardless, his wife, Natalie, who has this sort of weird, torrid, quasi-free love, quasi-not affair with this actor, um, and then she dies of tuberculosis, and in the third play, um, he's living in London, and his buddy Ogarev uh, shows up with his wife, Natasha, who they had met earlier in the 1848 revolutions, um, and sort of... All of a sudden, Herzen and Natasha start shacking up, and then we, like, we just get one scene where they're at a funeral, and they sort of embrace, and then we cut forward to a year and some change, and all of them are living in the same house, and Natasha has Herzen's like, six-month-old child. And I just, I get the desire not to be melodramatic, although I want to put a pin in that, but like, I wanted <laughs> to see any of that. Like, I understand we don't want to spend hours and hours and hours with that dynamic, but that's a much more interesting dynamic than some of the stuff we do spend time with, is how did they come to this sort of arrangement because Ogarev's aware I totally of it. He's not agree. strictly he's not strictly happy about it. Like at one point Herzen, who's just the biggest jackass in the world in the third one, like they're talking about their daughter, Herzen and Natasha's daughter. Uh and he looks at his buddy Ogarev and says, Do you want to know when it happened? And, <laughs> you know, do you want to know when when we conceived this child? And Ogarev yeah, says, we, Am I to be spared nothing? <laughs> when I cuckled at you basically, yeah. yeah. No, it's do you want to know no, specifically I... when this happened? Um, no, so honestly, Bill. I mean, so yeah, it's funny because I, I really, I really loved these plays. But actually, you're, you're enunciating all of my doubt, like all of my frustrations that I did have. Um, I was gonna say of my least favorite play, it was the third one, precisely because of the Natasha Herzen relationship. Not that it happened, but that this um, attempt at free love, which is actually, or you know, whatever you want to call it, which is what I think they're trying to do, right? Because they, they reference like there was a moment when Natasha, who's married to Ogarov, Ogarov, did I say his name? Uh, it's either Ogarev? Ogarev or Ogarev. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know where to put the emphasis Ogarev. in Russian. I Whatever. Don't know. Okay. So Nick. <laughs> and again, if you know, don't tell me. I don't yeah. care. <laughs> I'm gonna call. I'm gonna call Ogarev Nick, um, <laughs> which is what they call him. So Nick, yeah. who is married to Natasha, 
um, is, you know, they're both, Natasha and Nick are living with Herzen, right? And Herzen and Natasha start up a love affair, which ostensibly is sort of a reenactment of Herzen and his first wife's marriage because Natasha was best friends with his first wife, who, and they share the same name. So there's all this weird, interesting stuff. But the weirdest thing is, like, they reference a moment of, like, there was a time when all three of us were in love and it was totally okay. And now Nick drinks too much. And, like, I feel like, you know, Natasha says, I feel like I've ruined everything. And you're right. We didn't get to see, like, I'm not sure I needed to see the, the fallout because that's such a predictable situation. But I, I definitely wanted to see the attempt at free love, to be honest, because that feels like a big shift for her Zen who basically condemns Natalie, his first wife, for that exact sentiment. Because she takes yeah. a lover and says, my love is universal. I, 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 I give. It's not about taking from you and you know, finding somewhere else. I give freely to all, right? Which then is sort of what they attempt, apparently. But we don't see it. It's just they have a child. <laughs> Which, again, part of me is interested in that. But I, I'm with you. Like, if you're going to build this political drama around these kind of like family dynamics... I mean, don't skip the most interesting family dynamics, which I think is why the third play was, uh, for me, it was definitely the weakest. No, and I would agree. Like, I actually liked the first play a fair amount. Uh, uh, the second Same, play I, I liked parts of, and the third play I really didn't like at all. So, Yeah, and I, I liked all three, but I, I, um, if we're just going to like rank them for sure, I, I loved the first play. Um, Luboff, who is uh, Michael Mikhail Back, how do I say his damn name? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's Bakunin, Bakunin. or something like that. Bakunin. Bakunin sounds good. Uh, Mikey B. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Bakunin's, one of his sisters, Lubov, um, has sort of this tragic death, right? Like, never getting what she wants, partly because of um, Bakunin. And uh, it, honestly, it got it got me. I mean, like, no, I wasn't like, you know, I didn't feel like I was floored by it. But I, I will say, I think if I saw it in theater, I would have found it emotional. You know what I mean? Um, and I thought it was, I really liked how he does a lot of timey wimey stuff, <laughs> you could say. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the better moments for me is the, you know, um, kind of using her death scene to enact one of the first play or what, you know, not her death scene, but her, like her carriage, yeah, this kind of like weird moment of family feasting where she's at the center of it after we learn that she died. I really liked that. I thought that was really good. No, I thought, so the, the first play is, I think, much more structurally interesting than the second two are. We do get a flashback in the second play, and then I'm not sure we get a flash. We get some dream stuff in the third play. So there's yeah, definitely some stuff, stuff. There's definitely stuff in these plays that would be much more interesting staged, right? Cause like, oh, yeah. They, they, they make exactly one sort of weird fourth wall break reference to the fact that the scenes flow one into another. A character falls asleep in a house in London in 18... I don't remember the year, but let's say 1852, and then stays in place on the stage. The, the set moves to a house in another part of London a year or a couple years later, and the guy wakes up there. And Herzen makes a joke about the guy says, "You've rearranged the furniture." And Herzen says, "Yeah, we you woke up and we're here now." So there's exactly one sort of fourth wall breaking joke, I thought. But yeah. uh, you know, stuff like that would make it really much more interesting and dynamic to see as a play. And as a, as a quick side note, and this is relevant. The plays are three hours each staged, and that's not from the script. The script is not three hours no, long for each of these no. plays. <laughs> no, no. Well, then that's why I say I, I think that there is, yeah, because of the set changes and everything else, I, there just has to be. And he even, he gestures to it in, like, the notes for the play, right? That He kind of, the, the, the stage directions talk about this whole silent scene is happening, and it's completely up to the director, right? The, like, the way he's written it, it could yeah. It could be done so differently depending on your own vision, which I think is sort of beautiful. But 
I don't, I'm not sure I either, I, it was more open-ended than the other stuff I've read from him. I do think also, I think Stoppard is, um, who, who, who is probably basically a genius based on some of the interviews he's done and stuff. But, um, I do think he's one of those guys, uh, you could, you could call him like a, a kind of a modernist or like a, a new criticism kind of guy where I, I think he takes form almost like literal in that sort of like high school way, which I, I think he's smarter than that. But like, it's so like the first play. It's, you know, Hegel is sort of the driving philosophical reference, right? And they talk right. about zigzag. And the play zigzags. Yeah. <laughs> the, like, the play literally is, like, scene to scene to scene to scene. It goes backward and forward before it resolves into something that was more whole than the parts were. Like, for the best example being Lubov's death, which you don't really get in order of seeing the sentimental moment of her being carried out by her family for this, like, kind of pre-death feast or whatever. And so I think um, I think why what, what's fun about Stoppard is that like you know kind of as hard as you want to push on him, they're actually like he has thought it through. There's reasons for that. I just think he also get, but he also gets criticism from this I, from the little that I've read, where that the two things that you think you don't like the most. Um, sometimes it feels like he's being cute and, as opposed to profound. Um, and other I, I also do think he he sometimes makes his characters into these, these little essays, right? Which is not the most interesting way to write a character. Um, hers and especially, I actually think his best moments are in the first play by far. <laughs> he's great in the first play. The two moments he has are like, he's like this like hearty, like activist, like, uh, I don't know. He's like such a great foil for Bakunin just in the two yeah. moments he shows up. It's like, man, that guy is like a, a fascinating sort of, you know, strong authoritarian character. And then it's sort of, I mean, again, I think he's good all throughout, but Weirdly, the first play, I think, is just, yeah, untouchable. And I guess the other th- at least in this play, you know, he makes some characters into essays, and I never found the essays terribly compelling. You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, and maybe that's just, it didn't work for me, because, I don't know. Uh, you know, I guess, I, I actually, I, I thought about this some the other day. I really haven't studied English after high school, right? You know what I mean? Right. Like, I, I yeah. took, like, one class in undergrad. So... Sometimes I think I miss stuff, probably, right? <laughs> I don't <laughs> well, know. I, do. <laughs> I, I miss stuff. Uh, but I did study philosophy, right? So if someone's doing a, a play about philosophy, I, I guess maybe I might be approaching it not quite from the right perspective, right? <laughs> right. No, that's... Um, that's go ahead, keep going, sorry. And so, you know, he's... I'm All right, I'm going to give you a philosophical essay now. And I'm like, all right, dope. I'm down for that. Let's do it. And then I didn't find it terribly compelling as either dialogue or as an essay and i feel like it should have picked one in several places there's a couple exceptions i have i have one speech in particular that i liked that i do want to Belinsky is it Belinsky uh, actually speech? it's a here's a Harrison speech Belinsky's got several good ones but there is actually a Harrison speech about bread that i thought was pretty good oh um, yeah that one is good yeah so uh you know i, I don't want to say these are bad play that's not what i'm trying to say i i they rankled me in ways i didn't expect and i liked them less and less as i went on so i left with a bad taste in my mouth if we if we were right. just talking about voyage i think i'd be saying really really nice things because i really like yeah. voyage quite a bit well and i i do think i mean um i do th- so that uh it, it, this is not helpful because it's a, it's a play you haven't read but um it probably gave me some context because you know uh, the play arcadia which i really love and was my introduction to stoppard um it's sort of all about the transition from neoclassicism to like romanticism you know Um, and he's, he's on the side of the romantics, right? He's like the Gothic revival is far more interesting than, you know, the cute French gardens or whatever. Um, 
I think at least. But so anyway, but the the play opens. It's like this, you know, ostensibly very high-minded play about a certain literary movement that has uh, applications to physics, actually, is one of his bigger things. But it opens with um, this tutor and um, his uh, students, and his the student asks, you know, what's a carnal embrace? I'm going to mess the joke up, but the tutor says... Um, when you just have to hug a lump of beef <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like, so I feel like in, in Stoppard's talked about like, like, you know, he primarily, like he is writing plays about ideas, but that he is like writing comedies and that he open he likes to open with jokes. He likes to open with, you know, the, the tone um, of the first couple of pages is meant to be kind of how the readers should take everything. And I do think like the opening of Voyage this big family dinner, this, or, you know, this very various family things. Um, I like, I guess my, what I'm getting at is I, I think a lot of it is actually mocking how these people treat philosophy as much as it's engaging them. And sometimes I couldn't tell if like, if that balance worked or if it was sort of sometimes if, okay, I guess if I couldn't tell if it worked because he was sort of making compromises toward like, hey, this play has to be funny and this play has to have like pathos. And so like, yeah, this is not the best essay, but also like it's about her, it's about Herzen's, you know, anger. It's about Belinsky's like inability to sort of like manifest his ideas the way he wants them to or whatever. So I couldn't tell if it was like a compromise to his, you know, playwright instincts or sometimes it was almost like a cop out to be like, I don't know, like, <laughs> here's the essay, but like, hey, don't mind if it's, you know, not all there because I've got jokes. You know what I mean? Like, I couldn't tell how much he was like sort of giving himself a cushion versus sort of, you know, I don't know, not coming up to par. Does that does that make sense what I'm saying? It does. And I like, I agree. Uh, again, the first play I like a lot, right? And so I think you're absolutely right there. Like a lot of the philosophy is beckoning just like every five pages saying it wasn't this philosopher he was wrong the whole time it's this guy like why was i so into shilling it's not shilling it's fictive you know i I love that so much i gotta tell you and that's yeah that's great it's very funny um and and much of the philosophy there is juxtaposed with these men giving these speeches and then the women that they're sort of ignoring being like okay cool but are we dating or not you know and that there's some very (laughs) funny jokes there uh you know again i think some of it's one note because again particularly in the first play the Bacchanian sisters burst into tears like three times a page. And again, if you staged it well, it could be funny. But I think it's, it's kind of... a lot of tears, you know, yeah. Man is philosophically obtuse, woman cries. Like, okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I think that... Uh, it's hard to do this without jumping around. Um, I do have a, a broader criticism about that. So the governess in the second play, uh, or the third play, rather, um, whose name is German and really cool, Malvita. <laughs> like, yeah. Malvita von, von Meisen book. I looked, looked her up. She's a writer. She wrote some stuff about idealism. She was friends with Nietzsche later on. Like, she's not a governor. I mean, she is a governess, but she's also, like, a minor one of these people. And not from yeah, the Yeah, that's, uh, that's a... <laughs> yeah, that, that's actually... I didn't know. That's a big... I think that's a... Yeah, that's a big mistake, actually. <laughs> and so, you know, none of... And some of the women, like the Buccanine sisters, are in, like, the philosophy society. Like, Lyubov talks about how she's read some of this stuff. Right. And, and, you know, they certainly weren't as historically important, and neither was von Meisenberg. I don't mean that. But, like, it's kind of tiring when it's just all the guys with all the ideas and all the women just sort of weep because they're not being paid attention to. But it is funny a lot of the time in the first book. Like, to be clear, it is very funny a lot of the time. And with Stankiewicz in the first book and all of his sort of misadventures are quite are quite funny. Well, I and like I, I do think, I mean, actually, I will say, I do think the one character who's, which maybe adds to your argument, one the one female character who's sort of given 
uh, license to go on and on about philosophy. Actually, there's two, I guess. There's Natalie Beyer, um, and then there's yeah. Natalie Herzen, who aren't the same person, right? He's not just married. I don't believe Beyer. so. No, Natalie Herzen. <laughs> no, no, Natalie Herzen is Alexander Herzen's cousin. Yeah, that's what I. I mean, I. But like, yeah, no, and I knew that. But I for the for the briefest part of um, the second play, I was like, because actually, I thought this because they're the two women who are most comfortable, sort of, you know, going off on philosophical ideas. Um, and actually, that's partly why I wondered if he wasn't mocking that sort of uh, sincere engagement with philosophy, because everyone who does it, male or female, even though Herzen's sort of philosophical, he's the one guy who keeps saying, like, there's no solution for everyone, which is sort of yeah. an anti-philosophical position, you know? Um, it's, you know, it's pragmatist, so it's not totally anti-philosophy, but it's certainly the anti-philosophy of what everyone else is doing. Um but yeah, no, I, I definitely think the melodrama. I, 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 well, it didn't bother me as much, but partly because I think um, I couldn't decide how it would how it would play out on stage. You know, um, especially with jokes. Like I don't like sometimes the one note, the one noteness of a page. That's the whole beauty of a play, right? Is that like it's being delivered, right? Someone is saying the words. Um, but I do think the I had no idea the governess was a writer, and I should have. Like that's a pretty partly because it'd be like she's she's already sort of an interesting foil to give her sort of you know a more robust background would only heighten the tension with her and Herzen and her and Tasha, right? I mean that would just make the conflict more dynamic. Yeah, no, I mean I. I think it would. And to be clear, I don't have her timeline sorted out. I don't know when she wrote her stuff, right? She might have done it well. Well, after I mean, was, I mean, but... Bakunin had four brothers as well. He wrote them off. I mean, yeah. it's a play, you know, you can <laughs> incorporate stuff. <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> um, we've got, okay. Really, well, I think we're like eight tangents deep. It's like a nested. It's like a, it's like a subplot in the unconsoled. He said, making a reference to last year's <laughs> big read. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I will, um, I do think Minch, I, I have a I have a note here, which uh, you and I. I mean, you did some. I guess you 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 kept doing some play stuff in college. Um, you and I were in drama together in high school, and so I, I realized Broadway is a, a different world of amazing special effects. But I, based on like all the short scenes and all of like the transitions and like the makeup and everything else that he says should change, I did think I was like, this is hell on the techies, you know? Oh, the backstage yeah, people, this can't be fun. <laughs> I, I or think, it's very fun. I, I don't know. I mean, so I did a little looking around as to what the original, the other plays were like, and I guess there's a lot of CGI projection for stuff. Um, I guess I think I think in both productions, but at least the the Broadway one that won all the Tonys. Um, so I, I don't think they're changing the set between every scene. I think there's a lot of no sort of standardized set which gets rearranged slightly, and then they project things. But still, it's a lot of backstage work. I mean, there's no way this isn't a lot of backstage work. <laughs> yeah, there's just yeah, someone someone's definitely on the verge of getting fired every night. <laughs> No doubt. Um, so let's, so, so, okay. So I think we've, I mean, indefinitely feel free to keep bringing up things that frustrated you, but I, I do think um, I was going to ask you about um, the kind of various character arcs that you enjoyed. Um, I mean, I, one of your complaints, which I agree with is that there's not a lot of development of characters. We sort of see them in one stage of their life and then in another stage. And like the stages are different. We don't necessarily see how they've, grown into that. I think that is probably the, the most salient uh, criticism I have of the third play, especially. But um, I'm curious about um, how you felt about the various character arcs of maybe the four, maybe the main four guys or anyone. Because personally, I, I actually thought he did a pretty wonderful job with um, Bakunin's 
uh, development or lack thereof, because he sort of is this buffoonish, hysterical person in the first play who has a little more going on, but is like there to be ridiculed, right? Like, um, and by the end of it, Bakunin hasn't necessarily changed, but he is more admirable, I think. Like, I think he's like noticeably more uh, beloved and respected in a way that I thought was pretty, pretty well done. What I like, I think the the key scene for me with him is the scene, it's just a random scene out of nowhere, yep, where he's exactly. in jail in, uh, I think it's in Germany. The details elude me, because he's in jail a lot. Uh, but he's in jail talking to what's supposed to be his, basically his public defender. Uh, that's obviously not, you know, it's a whole different legal tradition, but with his court-appointed lawyer. And his court-appointed lawyer says, all right, so why did you come to Germany? And Bakunin tells it, which was, well, I was trying to overthrow the government through meeting these people. <laughs> and he says, so no, okay, great. no, 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 <laughs> I'm your lawyer. You know that, right? Yep, okay. So why were you in Germany? Was it perhaps because you wanted to see this great piece of art over here? And he says, yep, also I wanted to overthrow the government. <laughs> and it's, of course... <laughs> very funny but it is also you're right i mean it's it's proof that no, it's... for all that he's flighty and ridiculous he's committed to this thing like what he's committed to exactly like his exact philosophy varies and maybe he's too destructive but he is honestly committed to being a revolutionary well and there's some way in which um so everyone else is just so burdened by life right like hers and whatever else the third play does i think it does show exactly how much he has sort of been uh, you know, stripped away piece by like you know he's gone through tragedy and he's even told to his face by like kind of the new revolutionaries, um, you're you know you're too great of a man to realize that you're a dead man, right? Like you're done, it's past, it's over. And so in yeah. some ways, you know, Herzen ends a, a failure, right? He dies um, dismissed by his own country. Um, his paper has failed. Um, he's lost you know three or four children. Um, <laughs> it's not a great ending in some ways, and he's tired, and the play emphasizes how tired he is. And um, Bakunin's sort of, like, constant cheerfulness in the first play, which is so destructive to his family, becomes this amazing, I think, like, almost, like, sign of his courage that he can have so much good cheer and goodwill um, in the face of these great events. Like, the great joke that he makes about um, asking, you know, where's the next revolution coming and Herson says, there's nothing happening. And he's like, well, I've come just in time. <laughs> and yeah. like, he, he just he just came from like, I mean, by way of other stuff, he just came from like being in prison in Siberia for, I mean, years, right? Like that's, that's remarkable. And I think that, that long, that was one of the better uses of Stoppard showing us a long timeline was that like Bakunin's kind of consistent cheerfulness goes from sort of buffoonish to like, okay, still kind of buffoonish, but like there's something sort of amazingly courageous about that sort of obstinate optimism, you know? No, I, I, I agree. I actually, I like him throughout. I think he works pretty well everywhere he shows up. I, I think I would agree with that. Do you know who played him in Broadway, by the way? No. Ethan Hawke played him on Broadway. Oh yeah. You wrote that and I already forgot. That's, that's yeah. interesting. I don't, I, that's interesting, man. I guess Ethan Hawke is probably a better actor than I ever give him credit for, but I would by like to accounts, see that. And Stoppard didn't, I mean, Ethan Hawke's worked with Stoppard before. It's so like, by all accounts, right. he's really good on stage. I haven't seen him in anything in a million. I haven't seen him in, maybe, have I never seen an Ethan Hawke movie all the way through? That's at least possible. Did you see Boyhood? You didn't see Boyhood? No, I didn't see Boyhood. Um, not on purpose. I just didn't get around to it. Um, 
and he's done some stuff recently that people have really liked. But uh, I've, I saw some clips of him in like Act One when he's playing sort of an Oscar Wilde character as back in and right, which works. You know, I, uh, yeah. But I haven't seen anything from him later on when he's got his ridiculous you know mane of hair and is sort of constantly dirty and fighting with people. Uh, but I think that would be. <laughs> I'd like to have seen clips of that because oh, I'm not saying same. it didn't work. It's just not what I traditionally think of when I think of Ethan Hawke. So it would be fun. No, totally. Yeah. Oh, and David Harbour plays the effete poet that she has the affair with. David Harbour, who you know as being the sheriff on Stranger Things and the most recent Hellboy. <laughs> well, that's actually what's funny. Is I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he wasn't quite the uh, kind of the idealized dad bod that he is now when he was doing this play. No, yeah. Um, but actually, he's who I thought of for Bakunin. When I first saw the cast list, I was like, I'm not sure he has maybe the, like the joviality because he's sort of such a grumpy presence, but. He has he has the right physique, as <laughs> what yeah. I thought for the end of the play, at least. But yeah, was it, so yeah, were there any other characters that stood out to you as far as like you enjoyed where they went, or or at least you were, I don't know, did the the arc stood out to you in some fashion? The answer so can be the, no. <laughs> I thought the characters were often pretty static. I I really didn't, or they would jump in like it wasn't an arc; it was a series of stair steps by and large. I I really it was sort of my biggest criticism of the play, I think, as a whole, is that I didn't ever buy, except maybe with the exception of Bakunin, who sort of deliberately doesn't move, which is still character right. development, right? Um, but I, I really liked Belinsky every time he was on stage. I actually really enjoyed, I think, every single scene Belinsky was in. And I don't know if it's a character arc, but the recurring plot in the first play about the penknife I thought was yes. fantastic. Agreed. So I'll talk about this briefly. Uh, I got started doing this, and then we started on our nest of <laughs> tangents. I'll try really hard to stay on task. Okay. The structure of the first play is the first whole act, like every scene's almost like six months to a year later, and it all happens on the Bakunin estate. Um, Premakino, I think it's something like that, which there's Alexander Bakunin, who is the father of Mikhail and the daughters and all of his family. And uh, you get like about once a year or so, often whenever Mikhail has come home from sort of deserting the army, uh, you meet him <laughs> and whichever of his friends he sort of brought along that the girls sort of alternately fall in love with or flirt with or hate or whatever. And it ends with, I think the last scene is when we find out that Lyubov, who is either the youngest or the second youngest daughter and has had kind of a couple of flirtations throughout, has died of probably consumption of, of some or another horrible 19th century disease. The second act then basically fills in the gaps for anything that happened not at the Bakunin estate. Would you say that's fair? Yep, that's yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. I think I don't know if it I don't know if it literally fills in every gap, right? But but things that you hear them talk about in the first act, where they're like, "Oh, do you remember when we were in Moscow and you talked to this guy and that person?" You see that scene then in the second act, and there's a recurring plot line with this penknife where Lyubov talks in the first act about how she's got the penknife of Nikolai Stankevich, who's this. A uh, young man who uh, uh, Berlin talks about him, who I guess exerted a lot of influence on the sort of the the scene, the proto intelligentsia, and then died at like 26. So everyone, you know, eulogizes him all the time about how great he is, but he actually didn't write that much that uh, really survives to this day of, as of, of any particular import. But all of the people whose writings we do still read today, they all love Stankevich, right? Right. Which is also true of Belinsky, but to a lesser extent, because we do still read some of Belinsky's stuff. I mean, I don't, because I haven't, but my understanding you know, people do, right? <laughs> yeah, people do. Uh, <laughs> I, that's what I hear, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so Lyubov says, I found this pen knife that Stankevich left behind, and I didn't give it back to him. I kept it, and I'm wearing it as like a, char like a charm around her neck or something like that. And then later on, she tries to give it back to him, and he says, this isn't mine. And she hangs on to it, and... Later on in the play, still at the at the Bakunin estate, Bolinsky shows up, who is the sort of less educated, um, 
literary critic who also dies young and inspires other people, but also sort of moved this social criticism forward. Uh, they go fishing. Turgenev, I think, catches the carp, and in the belly of the carp is this penknife. And Belinsky says, oh my goodness, this is my penknife. This is a magical place. I can lose a penknife in Moscow, and it shows up in the belly of the carp <laughs> here. And he sort of goes on this rapturous tale. Yeah. Um, and then in the second act, you discover what happened, which is it is, in fact, Belinsky's penknife. And at one point, Belinsky's going to a party, and he gets flustered and tries to leave because he's too awkward. And Stankiewicz tries to hold on to his, like, literally grab onto his pockets and tears his coat, and the penknife falls out. And then, uh, Lyubov shows up and picks it up later, tries to briefly to give it back to Stankiewicz, who she thinks it is, while Stankiewicz is flirting with this other woman, and then clearly takes it back home to, um, takes it back to the Bakunin estate and clearly throws it in the pond at some point. And I just think that was a really great arc that was not, it was relatively subtle. I mean, obviously it's an important subplot, but you know, I don't think you actually see her throw it in the lake. In fact, no. I think that's just implied. I, like, it's possible I missed something and someone else did that, but I think that's clearly what's implied. And I thought that was such a great arc for showing both sort of the way contingent things can completely reshape the way people perceive each other. And it gives Belinsky this moment to just sort of wax rhapsodic about the sort of magical place he's found himself in. So that's not a character arc exactly, but I really loved that subplot. I thought that well, was... Well, no, I way. yeah, I was actually going to say, I, I liked, I actually liked Belinsky's arc. And I, I, I think you're right. And I, I mean, I do think it's on purpose. I, it doesn't mean you have to... Actually, I should make a note about that. Because um, I feel like in, in one of my dumb English degrees... The latest one, actually, which is the one I like most, but um, <laughs> I do think I do think there was always this like this this way of um, approaching literature, which is very helpful for writing, which is to say, you know, what's the project? Is he fulfilling the terms of the project? You know, is the writer doing the work she set out to do? Whatever, right? And I think that is a helpful like paradigm for talking about literature. I think it's also frustrating sometimes because, of course. Um, uh, one of my favorite books, actually, um, is a perfect example of this. Uh, it's uh, Joseph Heller's Something Happened, and it has this sort of crazy ending, which completely matches the project of the book, but I still found it, like, wanting. You know what I mean? Like, it, didn't, it didn't quite work for me. Uh, but also, I'm not sure it quite worked, period. And so, of course, there's an easy way which you say, like, okay, the project is flawed, but I, I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is at some point you break down into these like irreducible spaces of taste where it's like, I don't know if it matters that I understand what's happening. It has to land. It, just, it has to land right, um, which is not to make everything relative, but to say that it only goes, it only helps so much to get inside the mechanics, which I know is a long aside, but I, it matters to me because I think Stopper's mechanics mostly land for me, but I do think a lot of the development stuff we're talking about I mean, I, I really do think that there is a, a, a criticism or at least an exploration of um, sort of dialectical materialism that he is playing with form-wise, right? Like that we do zigzag to these individuals who are sort of at the mercy of the play, but expressing themselves within the moment the best that they can or whatever. And I think, again, sometimes Stoppard's problem is that he's too cute as opposed to profound, but to the extent that characters are allowed to develop, or at least that we're allowed to see them be something else that they weren't earlier. Um, I I thought Belinsky was one of the, my favorites because we see him go from sort of like um, this enchanted uh, literary critic on kind of Bakunin's coattails to actually living out like a more egalitarian life than anyone else does, right? Like he yeah. sort of just marries someone who's nobody, right? Like, and he still sort of is like everyone, like everyone else, he's messed up in the area of love, but he's sort of, 
faces things with a uh, with a practicality that like he I definitely did not predict based on his sort of like weak uh, you know fantasy driven sort of you know um, affect when we first meet him. Do you know what I mean? And so like yeah, sorry, that was a long way of saying it. I'm not sure he develops, but I definitely think where he ends at is interesting, and I, I think that's true for a few people, including actually I would say Herzen's. Uh, first wife, um, his only wife, but like, you know, the first Natalie, she definitely doesn't develop per se, but I, I, I think that there's something very farcical and tragic about her taking seriously these ideas that everyone in her life has talked about, and then she's sort of punished for taking them seriously. Um, yeah. So yeah, that that's a who I, I I would throw her out, but also of course I really love the Lu the the, the Lyubov, um her whole stuff throughout i thought was great i thought she really anchored the emotion of the first play no i would agree i think she's probably the most important character in the first play um as like the arc that i mean everything sort of particularly by the after the first couple scenes everything pretty much becomes sort of tied into her i think um which i think is is great and i I think is probably a better way to do it while still having your sort of arc i don't say archetypes that's not right but like your characters who are to a large extent, philosophical mouthpieces. I think it's good if they're orbiting around someone who's a human person. And I think yeah. that's one of the flaws with the later plays is that they don't as much. Yeah. Um, well, and also, I mean, and yeah, I actually do think a, a classic problem with Stoppard is like, um, if there's any dynamism in his plays, it's from all of these flat characters, like bouncing off of each other, as opposed to these like round characters, you know, having a change of heart or something. Right. Right, and, and to be clear, I actually, I have a soft spot in my heart for characters that don't change very much. Like, I actually kind of <laughs> like, like, my one of my favorite short story collections is the Fritz Leiber, Fafford and the Grey Mauser sword and sorcery stories. And oh, they yeah. don't really change much story to story. They're pretty, I mean, you get a little bit, but by and large, they're the same characters. And the interesting thing is seeing is how those guys deal with these weird situations they end up in. You know what I mean? Well, uh, which is I'm actually, okay with yeah. that. Which is sort of like the heart of sitcoms too, actually, right? Like what becomes funny yeah. is the situation that you see like Captain Holt in as opposed to like, oh my gosh, Holt, Holt, Holt's cheating now. He's like a cheater, you know? Yeah. It's, you know, and of course you, you do have a good sitcom, they do change some. But yeah, a lot of it is seeing these characters, how they adapt. And that's the old like, was it the Commedia dell'arte, the old Italian thing where you just have yeah. these types and you put them in new situations. I think there's... I'm okay with that. I just didn't find the types terribly compelling here. Like, I didn't right. buy any of the philosophy. Not, not any. Again, I'm overstating things. But I didn't buy a lot of the philosophy, particularly in the third book when, you know, we're arguing with Chernyshevsky, who's sort of the vanguard of the young, dour, break-things school of revolutionary, who were inspired by Herzen but are not nearly as interested in sort of art and are much more willing to uh, the axe rather, you know, the, think this, this revolution has to be done by the axe as opposed to by the pen is the line. And there's a sort of argument between Chernyshevsky and Herzen, and I just didn't buy it. Uh, I just didn't think it was particularly compelling. And so that was my problem, is I actually think he didn't... I mean, Stoppard's a much better writer than I will ever be, but I just think he didn't do a particularly good job portraying these philosophical debates. Well, and I, I actually think... <laughs> I think part of the problem that... I mean, maybe I would... I would my addendum would be that... Um, Chernyshevsky, is that overstating his name? <laughs> I think that's actually right, too. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, you can... You know what? Email Bill about that one. Tell him he killed it. That, that one, yeah, I did, spelled I did pretty hard. One, so. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, no, but, like, that argument, actually, my problem with it, because there was a, a, a line in there that Chernyshevsky gets off about, like, um, if you just keep mending the system, you 
you keep the system or whatever, right? The system survives. You know, that's, like, if you just keep mending it, the system survives. And it's basically like reform versus revolution, right? Which is sort of a tired idea in some ways. But the really, the problem that I had though is like, I don't know Chernyshev. Ch- I messed his name up. What's his name again? I think it's Chernyshevsky. Chernyshevsky. I don't know him. He's not, yeah. like, he's been mentioned, but he's not someone in the play who has any weight, right? Like, it's not like, like I actually didn't understand why Herzen couldn't have that argument with almost literally any other character, including even if he's in prison because there are dream sequences, Bakunin, right? Who actually yeah. believes in the axe. Um, and so I, that was actually my problem was that sometimes the philosophy felt weak to me, not just because it was sort of these broad notes that didn't necessarily, you know, have robustness, but because like the, the characters aren't, aren't giving me any kind of dynamic character conflict in which to anchor um, the philosophical conflict, which, which is not as true in the first play because the first play is all about Michael Bakunin, Mikhail. Um, it's like his father tells him, you have destroyed your family. Like your philosophical yeah. bent has been, you know, turned against the very people you love. And there's endless stakes, right? And the idea of like, the personal and the political colliding and sort of these ways that actually weirdly enough, like Christianity reflects, right. Came the divide, not to whatever, right. Like Jesus talks about stuff in the Bible. You've read it. It's cool. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I just didn't want to start quoting Bible verses out of nowhere. (laughs) Um, So, no, so, so that, but I do, but um, but so that's, but I also think sometimes what I think though, and maybe this is me being too inside the mind of, Stoppard as a writer or just projecting because actually I, I think sometimes what Stoppard has, what well, his problem is, is like he can't decide um, if the philosophy is too rote and well-known to go into or if it's like too specific to bore the audience. Do you know what I mean? Like I feel like he can't decide which one is which and so often he settles for this unsatisfying third way which is like oh yeah reform versus revolution you you know about that and it's like i mean okay yeah but what about like these people's lives like that feel like that would be an idea that they would actually talk about more than just saying like oh it can't be the axe okay but wait isn't that isn't that the whole debate like that's the actual debate you're trying to have but you're sort of sidestepping it I think because you believe it's too obvious of a, like, people know the debate, whereas just show it, just show me the debate and make it interesting through character. Yeah, I felt like there was a weird, so I, okay, so you obviously have to read these plays, which are about 1833 to 1862-ish, in light of, of course, in the fact that 50 some odd years later, we're going to have the Russian Revolution in 1917. And, you know, Lenin and all those guys are going to be thinking about at least some number of these guys as they kill a whole bunch of people, right? Right. I I think it's important to remember those things such that I feel like, you know, when you hear Chernyshevsky say it has to be the axe, we're supposed to be thinking of Lenin. And and, I mean, totally, yeah, not not incorrectly. I think that's right, because I think Lenin and guys, I mean, I think Chernyshevsky was highly, uh, what's the word I want here? Revered. There we go. I kept saying reviled, but that's the opposite of it. Uh, Chernyshevsky, I think, was revered by the the Bolsheviks, right? Like, I think that's correct. Um, and so I think there's sort of a fear of presenting maybe the... I don't say a fierce. I don't want to, say, I don't want to imply that Stoppard was scared, but I think there's a, there's a danger, I guess, in writing it. It'd be very easy to get off topic, right? And to sound like yes. you're really talking about the Russian Revolution when we're actually not 
exactly right. trying to talk about the Russian Revolution. We're trying to talk about these debates earlier when, you know, the revolutionaries are pretty clearly the good guys. We might not always agree with what they're going to do here, but the Tsar is a nightmare, right? Like, there's really it's really hard to read any yeah. history of this and not feel like the revolutionaries might have been right or wrong about their methods, but we're on the side of the angels, right? Like, right. <laughs> Um, and, and so I, I feel like maybe that might be under part of it is, again, I don't, I don't want to imply that it's Stoppard being afraid of being called a communist. I don't think that's it, but I think it's a, a fear of trying, not a fear, but a, a difficulty in presenting this debate in a way that doesn't start to sound like well, Soviet I, apologia, right? Or apologia. Yeah, that's true. That. I guess, and, cause I, and I think what, 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 if I, I think if he's, if he's afraid of anything, I think he's afraid of being reductive. And I think weirdly that fear sometimes makes him, um, less specific or less sort of like uh again i think the best word i have is character driven because chernyshevsky being brought in the way he's brought in i actually think that stoppard relying too much on an on an external kind of like source of meaning right that like chernyshevsky who's pro acts is definitely supposed to be the you know kind of the foreshadowing of 1917 right and later um you know when it gets even worse and worse and worse or whatever and yet that that's the problem is that like this is a play where the characters are supposed to be in the moment and it, it actually calls back to your moment with um Turgenev where I I kind of like some of the stuff with the nihilist I hated when he said his name you know I did not yeah. like when he was like I am the character from your novel that you've yet to write one because either I don't get it and so it doesn't matter or I do get it and it's sort of just this like it's sort of this cheap way of making significance, right? It's but you know, which is to use external stuff um, to say everything for you, as opposed to finding a way to say it yourself. Um, and that's why Chernyshevsky. I think the problem for me is like it's a character problem. Like, why is this nobody who I don't care about, who I realize is very important historically, but in the play, like, I I get the I, if you want if you need like new young men to represent Herzen's decline. Like, you should introduce them in their own scenes and give them, like, sort of a really, you know, um, anchored gravity within the the play, I think. No, I think that's right. So one of the major plot things that happens in the third is is, uh, the 1861 emancipation of the serfs in Russia, which I don't know a ton about, right? But the Tsar issued a sort of a proclamation emancipating the serfs in Russia, who were basically slaves. Um... You know, they, they, were, they could be sold with the property, right? They were, uh, you talked about owning property, including some number of souls. It's not exactly yeah. the same as, like, African-American slavery in the U.S. No, but, time, yeah, but I mean, there's a lot more, yeah, but it actually, there's a lot of parallels, I think. Right, and so in 1861, the Tsar, uh, who was a bit more reform-minded, and maybe maybe literally in part because of Harrison's work, although, of course, that's, you know, it might be too pat, but it's at least implied that it helped, uh, decides to emancipate all the serfs. And... I don't know what actually happened. I haven't read much history of it, but it certainly was complicated and a lot of people died. There were surf revolts. You know, he was maybe too nice to the landowners. Not unlike, again, part of what happened in Reconstruction where right. we sort of said, y'all are all free, but we're sure not going to, you know, we're going to compensate the slave owners, but we're not going to really do much else. Good luck. <laughs> Only yeah, your material, even your more material, material circumstances haven't really changed, but you are free. <laughs> yeah. And so Hertzen, there's a whole scene where Hertzen and company are like, man, this didn't work this didn't work right. Everything kind of went to crap. And that's, I think it's after that when Chernyshevsky shows up and says, yeah, well, look, you tried to emancipate by the pen. We got to emancipate by the ax. Right. And so I think that's a compelling dilemma. But again, all that happens off stage. What happens is one scene, Harrison and company are throwing a party. And the next scene, Harrison says, boy, that didn't work. I mean, <laughs> almost yeah. literally that abruptly. And I don't need, again, I get, you don't want to, we don't want to do Les Mis with barricades. Like I get that. But 
why don't we have any scene where we have something a little closer to the action, right? So we have any way to believe these stakes. Because, I mean, I get, again, I get that Harrison was living thousands of miles away, and so on. there's a sense in which it puts us in, you know, sympathy with him. But also, I just don't have any context for this. Again, I no, only I know mean, the faintest thing know, about but, the 61 surf. So yeah, but why not? But why not have Chern, why not give why not give a short two page scene of Chernyshevsky where he yeah exactly right like that's that would be one of the solutions that would give him more of a presence in the play um, and even if it happened after he and Herzen's discussion it would actually like make their discussion feel like when I think back on the play it would give it yeah. more weight because it was with a character that wasn't just important as like sort of a foreshadowing of what's to come or whatever. And he's more important than that too. But like, I guess maybe what we're saying, I mean, you're saying a lot more than that, but I, I think it, um, my problem with the third play is maybe Stoppard kind of lets Berlin guide him too much. That Herzen becomes such the center of things that like Chernyshevsky matters because he's symbolic of Herzen's decline. But that's, I mean, that's only so interesting, right? Like, that's not, like, symbolism at the level of symbolism only is sort of just boring, right? It can't just be that every time. So, I don't know. I mean, that's the biggest problem is the first play is strong because Herzen's not the center, whereas the third play is weaker partly because he is. Um, which is, I know, kind of a silly, shallow way to say it, but I think that is, I think that matters, actually, to why they're better and worse, maybe. I think that's right. I think, I don't know. I, think, I don't want to spend the whole rest of this podcast harping on these plays. They certainly weren't terrible. I don't mean to overstate things. Oh, no, I I mean, when I, sh- when I should clarify, I loved them. I mean, I really, I, I even the third play, I liked a lot. I just think, um, yeah, I think, well, you're also, you're making me think about how much I had problems with some things I hadn't really thought about, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Coberly, ruining people's enjoyment of things since at least 1989. <laughs> Truthfully, though, the totality of the plays I loved, and I, like, I, when I finished reading it, the first thing I wanted was to have been able to see them on stage sort of yeah. like three nights in a row. Unless you have something else directly on point, I no, want to no, switch no. gears a bit. I want to talk about some stuff I did like, and I want to talk about a couple of sillier things, too. Uh, what, he does some... I actually really like most of his structural stuff. I'm always really skeptical of dream sequences and plays, whatever. Fine. Uh, you have to get Karl Marx on stage somehow, and that's how he does it mostly. That's fine. Right. But... Um, he does a couple of really fun structural things. Like we talked about the timeline in the first play, the second play, there's a party sequence, which gets flashed back to later. And the first play, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's happening at once. And he says in the stage direction, like the next two pages all happen at roughly the same time. You know, you just got to figure out how to change the focus of the scene. And then he later goes, Belinsky starts a speech and gets cut off because we switch focus. And then I think the very end of that act is Belinsky giving the whole speech. So there's some very fun sort of use of time stuff he does there. But one of the smartest things he does, and I think this is one of those things that's very easy to miss in reading it, is the way he handles languages. Um, yeah. So I guess it's just English and Russian he does this with. When someone speaks in German or Italian, he just does it in German or Italian. Um, but the first scene is a bunch of these Bakunin kids, sort of like the the Bennetts sitting around their you know, patriarch, right? Uh, talking with their English governess, and Alexander Bakunin, the patriarch, is talking about how he's taught all his daughters to speak English. I mean, not, not directly, but how he's had this governess come in to teach them all to speak English because isn't right. he nice and liberal and, and forward thinking. And so they switch back and forth between speaking in Russian and English. And the way Stoppard gives it directions to be done and the way I understand it has been done is when they're speaking in Russian, they speak in their native accents. So whatever the actors or maybe they standardize, I don't know. But in, in American, if it was done here, or an English accent, if it's done there. Like, I've seen clips, and it's just Ethan Hawke talking like Ethan Hawke, right? 
But when they're speaking in English, they don't change the language, but they speak in a thick Russian accent. Um, so that when they're saying in Russian, hey, how are you? They just say, hey, how are you? But if they're going to like quote something from George Sand in English, they lay on a Russian accent on top of it. And I think that's a really fun structural way to do something and to get around how to deal with these language problems, which is always such a tough, uh, oh, tough no, thing I, yeah. in live theater in particular. Totally agree. Uh, and I really like that. Um, yeah, no, I, really I, I totally... To <laughs> no, no, I totally agree. Well, and I thought... Um, I mean, it, it was stuff like that, and it was sort of the complexity, um, the complexity of because uh, well, you actually you brought up like you know the kind of the um, the, the party that comes back at the end and the, the second play, right? Like um, I think it's the second play, right? That where they have yeah, yeah. because that's also um, there's also the, the second play. If if any if anything kind of anchors it emotionally, it's the death potentially of uh, Koya. Right um, yeah. of his of Herzen's deaf son, and um, I yeah actually I I think that would probably um, it was affecting to read it, but I think to see the same scene emphasized differently. One again, yeah. I think it stopped making sort of a an argument that's in favor of Herzen, which to say is like, hey, here's the big overarching like, abstraction of people talking, but hey, here's what mattered. Like right, here's yeah. the individual moment that really gives meaning to sort of what we're trying to talk about. Um, but also what I, I guess I was going to say is even though the plays were really fast read, because th- there's a lot of formal momentum, the, the dialogue's very punchy, very, I think very funny. Um, but actually like there's so many, there are so many little things that happen that I think would be sort of, um, if not, magnified on stage i would certainly have more time to be like oh natasha's doing that or like i don't have to like spend time imagining natalie and natasha and whatever sort of crazy beflagged get up they have right like there's sort of just this (laughs) vibrancy to their entrance that speaks volumes and that maybe lasts with you when things go haywire do you know what i mean like i feel like there's all this individual stuff happening that is hard to keep straight because it's you know it's on the page and it's 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 meant to be embodied literally um but and that's yeah and which but i think to your point like stuff like the pen knife he has a lot of those moments where things recur that i think um might be more meaningful if they had an actor behind them no and i think um, you're i think these are definitely i mean this is true of i mean most plays certainly but i i definitely would like this better if i saw it performed i mean assuming it was a competent production but i mean that's a i'm assuming (laughs) yeah like (laughs) i would not want to go to a high school production of the coast of utopia oh my god (laughs) see that's where you and i disagree i think that would be comedy for a lot of reasons okay you're right i probably would go to that but i don't know as i would i would would want that to be my sort of platonic ideal no it should be I do think I mean it's it's funny because I, I I I kind of love how um, how committed Stoppard is to like um, just like language jokes. Um, I didn't find the best one, but one of the ones I like um, is in one of the dream sequences when all of these like various um, immigrants are sort of coalescing on Parliament Hill, uh, including Marx, and they're all sort of like insulting each other, which is great. Um, for example, like uh, one person is called just a long streak of piss, which is <laughs> which is not the wordplay I'm coming to, but was just an amazing insult. <laughs> a long streak of piss. I don't even know why that's like. Why is that more insulting than like a short stream of piss? Is it worse? Or is, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. But the uh, basically the dream sequence partly comes to an end or starts to end 
when various of the immigrants are all criticizing Marx. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and so I think that, so it's like the first person calls him abortionist, the second, like parasite sponger, um, another one onanist. And the, and the punchline is economist, <laughs> which yeah. um, he does that again and again. And it's sort of like a, it's sort of these, like, it's basically, again, it's, it's like almost like, just like cheap sitcom jokes. Um, I don't think they're cheap. I actually think it's really hard to write jokes. And I think he does write actual jokes that I, I literally laughed at when I was reading it. Um, but I think for me, that would probably be the saving grace of the play throughout is that every time I, I got frustrated or anything else, I found usually the dialogue or the humor brought me back to a place of like, okay, yeah, this is, I'm really like, I'm entertained, you know? Um, which is why I say, I think, come back to the irreducible problem of taste. You know what I mean? Like, I think Stoppard is weirdly silly for sort of how highfalutin he is. And I love that combination. I love the highfalutin silliness of things. You know, I think that's a really, that's like a Joel sweet spot. No, that makes, and some of the jokes are great. I want to go back to the first plate, there's that sort of vaudeville routine between Stankiewicz and uh, Lyubov, which is just dynamite. Where Earlier in the play, Bakunin has told somebody, not her, a story about how Stankiewicz is so hopeless with women because one time somebody, some you know, somebody's neglected hot wife took Stankiewicz into a summer house and had him, like, right. kissing her breasts, <laughs> and then he just kind of freaked out for philosophical reasons and ran away. Yes. And earlier in the play, Lyubov was being courted by a cavalry officer who apparently kissed her in, a, in another summer house. And so they end up in meeting each other and talking about, you know, their sort of previous experience or whatever. And it becomes this great vaudeville routine where every time Lyubov says, I was kissed in you know, the kisses in the summer house. And Stankiewicz is like, oh God, what have you heard? She's like, nothing. The cavalry officer kissed me in the, in the summer house. And he's like, oh sure. And then they talk, you know, like, <laughs> it's just, it's a really funny, but yeah. it was just a silly Com- vaudeville Com- sitcom. Yeah. It's great though. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not mocking. No, it, he does. Uh, no, he does comedy of errors really well. I think I like the part where I'm um, actually Lubov and uh, her sister Varenka are talking about sex. <laughs> it's it's like crude, and I'm not yeah. sure if it's like a good moment like for women per se. But um, Lubov is like, you know, George does George Sand doesn't tell you the things you want to know about sex. And Varenka says, you know, I'll tell you if you want. And Lubov says, okay. <laughs> and Varenka says, remember that time the Tinker's jackass got into Betsy's paddock? Yes, Varenka, like that. Only you're lying on your back. <laughs> yeah. and, it, and then it ends with, oh no. And Franca says, not as big as that, which I don't even like totally know what everything means because, but like the Jack, I, anyway, it was a great moment of like completely crude laughter um, or humor. I should say that's followed by Stinkovich saying the laughter of women is like the spiritual community of angels, which of course yeah. is making fun of Stinkovich, right? Like I just feel like he, he does pile jokes on pretty hardcore, um, in a way that for me was a constant like source of like, uh, yeah, of forward momentum. There's a lot of good gags throughout. And I think a lot of them are in the first, but there's, there's good jokes throughout. And it's, again, it's not, there's no one scene really where I can say, I didn't like this scene. It was, it's the the summation of them. I didn't like, but moving on. Silly question. (laughs) We both used to do acting in high school and I guess I did in college. I don't know if you did, Um, but a little bit. And that's sort of purely amateur realm. If you had to play one of these characters, who would you play? Which is not the same thing as your favorite character to read or whatever. <clears throat> no, I know. Um, I, I, so I, 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 you at, I saw this question in your notes and I still don't have a good answer. Who do, who would you play? Let me think about it. <laughs> well, so it depends. I mean, I, I, I would like to play Belinsky in the sense that that would be the, I think 
my favorite part in the play and also one that I maybe could theoretically actually do. Probably I'd actually just have to play back in it and shout a lot, though. That's probably what I would have to do. <laughs> yeah, it would, I mean, so it's hard because, like, so there's a double question of, like, um, and, of course, this is all based on, like, uh, what was Joel's acting rage when he was 18? Because that, that is the most recent, you know, like, what would he be cast as? But um, I definitely think Bakunin is the part that I would want to play. Um, I do think it would be, you know, I honestly, like, Herzen is the main character. And it would be hard not to want to play him, if only because um, I think that he should be funny. You know, I, I, th- I think, like, that's one of the problems that Stoppard made is that, like, Herzen too often is, like, um, the the straight man in some ways. And I think that um, if he was played funnier, it would be good. I'm not sure I could do that, but um, I do remember being cast as the straight man in Mousetrap, for example. So that's also why I thought, you know, he's the protagonist, but also like there aren't a lot of... Um, oh, Ogarev. Ogarev would be fun because he's drunk in the third play the whole time. <laughs> um, See, I was thinking you should play Turgenev if you had to play. I, th- I think that would be your guy. No, you're totally right. You'd be but, Turgenev. Yeah, Turgenev. Okay. No, you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're to- <laughs> I actually hadn't even thought... Yeah, you're totally right. That's who I would play. You're 100% correct. Um, Excellent. Damn it. So we're gonna do, we're gonna do the big read cast production of this play. I hate, and you're gonna like. You're gonna have it up and up. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so good. Well, let's. I mean, so I, unless you have a lot, I I, I don't want to be done with the plays yet. But I, I did want to before I lose track and before we get too late into the night for me to be you know continue any kind of coherence. I did want to. The big question about the Berlin that we read, which is which we've kind of talked about because. Berlin is so um, pervasive in stopper, you know, playwriting um, as far as the ideas or whatever. It's kind of, you know, like we said, it's kind of the cliff notes. But what I wanted to bring up is um, Berlin is sort of um, this great champion of, like, individual liberty, as is his hero, Herzen. Herzen. And um, there's multiple points when, like, Berlin talks about how her, her zen, you know, her, the more I say his name, the more it's going to be wrong because it, I that like, I, I that's, like, his name is German, so it's Herzen. Yeah, thank you. And I, I just every time I say it, it, like it's a little farther from where I began, um, which was just <laughs> imitating you. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so Herzen, um, which you know, whatever Alexander. But then talks about though that there's a way in which his sort of intellectual honesty hits both left and right, even though like. He and Bakunin are both like socialists who have this kind of communal dream, yada, yada, yada. And yet he picks Herzen out of the group because he's sort of like this, you know, hardy individualist, um, which you could you could graft on some libertarian ideas. Certainly J.S. Mill's liberty ideas um, Berlin brings up explicitly. But I guess I was just going to ask you, because I think it relates to Stoppard's drama, um, is, is Herzen, is he the hero because he's like an actual enlightened centrist or is that, is that too, you know, dismissal, dis- dismissive? I mean, so, so obviously no one says enlightened centrist without putting some English on it. Right. So, but I, I, I do think there's some truth to that. I think certainly Berlin's take on this, and of course, Berlin's not a politically neutral writer, um, no. which is not a shame. He's not shy about it. Like, I, I don't mean to imply that he's, he's, uh, he's trying to sneak something past us. But, you know, he certainly, I think, I think positions Herzen as being sort of a a middle, not middle of the road, because he's not weak, but a, a sort of a centrist type in that he's, he hates both the sort of reactionary conservative awfulness of the Tsar, but he also seems to hate the sort of Marxist, you know, narrative where we're going to do horrible things right now, but it's definitely going to be justified by the utopia we're going to get at some, un, right. you know, undetermined point in the future. And so he really does kind of place him between those two camps. 
Um, so I think certainly Berlin is positioning him as a a sort of a, I don't want to say a third way, because that means something else too, but as kind of a centrist. And I think right. there's a pretty good sense in which Stoppard, I don't see Stoppard challenge Berlin at any point. No, that was actually, this. yeah, another problem that I think Stoppard had is he talks about E.H. Carr being a huge influence, who's a writer we didn't read, but it did seem like maybe there was some conflict. Like, for example, like when um when Berlin was summarizing some of Bakunin's stuff to like make fun of him, I was like, I don't know. I mean, is that so wrong? <laughs> is that like, is liberty possible without a sort of like give giving it to other? I don't know. I don't know. Like, there's a, there's a moment where it was like Berlin's takedown wasn't convincing to a degree that I thought Stoppard could have played with, basically. Yeah, I know that Bakunin's. So I, I've never read any Bakunin. A lot of it's not in English. Uh, I mean, it was never in English, but a lot of it isn't hasn't been translated. But I know that he's cited by. Like Chomsky sometimes and stuff like that, so I feel like right. there might be a little more to Bakunin than strictly is portrayed in the Berlin. But you know, he was also kind of a lunatic, apparently. So yeah, you know, I mean, fine. yeah, fair, but. fair, fair point. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I think to your point, I think that that's kind of right. I think Herzen is being positioned as sort of a a centrist, which I think can work both. If we're you know depending on how politically we want to be now both as sort of a yeah the right the right the, the way is the middle between the two extremes but of course it also works as a hegelian thesis antithesis synthesis point right right like arguably Herzen is a synthesis of the sort of old school you know some structure and and art and stuff conservatives and of the sort of caring about the peasants left i think you could at least make that argument that he functions as a hegelian synthesis of those two points yeah, no, I well, I definitely think I think what I found interesting about um, his portrayal in the Berlin and of course in Stopper, which is you know the great detriment you and I have, of course, is like yeah, I haven't read um, Harrison's actual work. You know, like I, I, he's not someone I can talk about with my own you know kind of personal take or whatever. What I think I took away from Berlin was actually a challenge about the idea of enlightened. Uh, centrist being such a joke is that Herzen or Herzen, God, it's gonna get worse and worse, Bill. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he, there is a coherence to how he hits out at left and right that I think maybe the kind of classically um, pilloried centrist of our own day might not have, because um, I feel like most people, including the people I come from, like they're all about like like they've like gr- they grown up with the idea that like balance and moderation and sort of these almost like Greek slash Christian ideals are just to be applied to everything, right? (laughs) Like, eat whatever you want, but in moderation. It's like that idea has been grafted onto everything they think about, you know, when it comes to morality. Um, But what what Berlin presents is a thinker who is against any sort of, like, overarching... um, Oh, I just lost the word. Um, When something moves purposely toward an elevated goal. um, Teleology? Yeah. Any kind of yeah. overarching teleology that sort of grafts individuals into it, whether they want to be or not. So, like, that would include the church. It would include, of course, um, history and the way that it's at least portrayed by Berlin and Herzen. Oh, my gosh. I just rhymed their names, Bill. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Okay. And so but, – so, but, that, but that was interesting to me because that's actually sort of a, a rigorous argument that I don't feel like I can just make fun of into you know into being meaningless right like i can't just say like oh both ways have problems he's saying no no no. here is a certain way of thinking about the world 
that is like sort of a coherent thing I disagree with. And also the bigger problem is that like he was still a socialist, right? And so it wasn't just that he was like politically a centrist because actually he was maybe a reformist, which is not quite as left as people wanted him to be. And yet he explicitly calls for like the abolition of serfdom and yada, 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 yada. I don't know. I, I, for me at least, and especially in this moment where like, um, I feel like any gesture toward enlightened centrism is like the mo- it's like it's almost like the worst thing you can do as opposed to just being right wing or left wing right like everyone hates sort of like the the milky middle the most um, but I found it to be a challenge of, of of my own maybe you know biases because like there was a coherence that I at least had to disagree with you know what I mean like I, I did have to at least say okay um, there's content here. And not sort of just like a, a temperament that I can dismiss, right? Because that's usually what I feel like people are dismissing. They're saying, hey, this person is the, – the, all these both sides you know, have problems, people. Those people are actually just like an attitude without any content. Whereas I feel like that was not true of the, the man's name who I will not say ever again, Mr. Alexander yeah. H. Or at least the way he's portrayed in the Berlin. Yeah, which, uh, Correct. that makes sense. No, I, th- I think that's right. I think he is – and he's differentiable from at least particularly Berlin's pers- uh, portrayal of Turgenev, which mostly happens in an essay I think maybe you didn't read at the very end of the book. Um, I didn't, yeah. But Turgenev is, gets pilloried by both sides after he writes Fathers and Children because there's this character he calls a nihilist, Bazarov, um, or Barazov. Hmm, I think it's Barazov, actually. One of those. <laughs> the nihilist, um, who is kind of this unpleasant person, but is also clearly the character the book is most in love with, I guess. Again, I have not read the book. Um, And so there were lots of people trying to figure out who the heck this guy is and why does he, you know, what is his whole deal and what is Turgenev trying to say? And Berlin says, well, Turgenev was just trying to deal with a problem, right? He was trying to do the, he wasn't trying to say anything. It wasn't a partisan point, but he ends up being kind of in the middle. And Berlin likes Turgenev, but he also says Turgenev was kind of waffly. He wasn't really interested in getting into a fight. And so he was maybe not an enlightened centrist, but sort of a, sort of a in the middle and not comfortable there, but not really willing to to make a stronger point, whereas his perspective of Harrison is, like, heroic, you know, is like this, this, this... Yes, this, he's courageous. <laughs> this this brave man who is sort of standing, who's not being taken aside by any of the easy narratives, and, uh, you know, that's not the same thing as, yeah, like I said, th- those, those are different, and it's also different from sort of the milky, I don't know, I don't want to go too far either way type. <laughs> I don't know why I did a Yogi Bear voice for that. I don't really think of Yogi Bear as Yogi Bear a... <laughs> is such a centrist pansy. <laughs> From now on, I'm going to read all of Joe Biden's quotes in a Yogi Bear voice. I don't know oh why, but it's what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I, I will say, I mean, I, I did think um, where Berlin got under my skin was um, his own passion for actually the style of both Bakunin and um, Herr Zinn. <laughs> yeah. uh, was, um, I, I think he really, he really respects that they're kind of, they really are holding nothing back and that there is sort of... Um, a way in which their style uh, enables um, their ideas. Not not just like because they're passionate, they can go to extremes, but sort of like the force of their verbiage requires, um, requires an answer, right? That the the forcefulness that they're, they're putting out there requires someone else to respond to them. And I, I actually do think he sort of convinced me that, um, 
that there is something to be said for like, yeah, there's the caricature of the man who stands abreast from easy narratives and is very logical. Like there is that caricature, but there actually also are those people who stand abreast that I find fascinating. Like I, um, I don't know if I, if I agree with him on, you know, I, I, who knows what I agree with him and don't agree with him on, but there's a writer that I follow, um, who's mostly on Twitter named Matt Stoller. And he's mostly just like anti-monopoly. That's his thing. And he's sort of, I guess, tentatively a leftist. I don't know. He has a big book coming out this year. But I actually kept thinking of him because he has such a forcefulness when he like, when he's talking to whether it's like Matt Brunig or Christopher Hayes, these other kind of like prominent leftists. Um, he sort of never holds back when he's like, you're a centralizer. Um, you want the monopoly to be in Washington as opposed to, you know, in the corporations, that's not going to help us. And like, there's a way in which that could be really, I don't know, really watered down and frustrating to like interact with, but actually like his forcefulness kind of requires almost me to take him seriously. You know what I mean? Partly because he's so intellectual as well, but there's a, there's a way in which he reminded me not of Harrison particularly, but of that sort of character of courageous intellectualism maybe does exist apart from um, its sort of more laughable instantiation. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But I don't but know yes, if I have but, another example, but I mean, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I think that's where Berlin did kind of convict me as far as like, you know, it's it, if you fall into just like, if you fall into making everything a meme, there actually is something that's obviously childish about that that won't help anyone as opposed to like, you know... Um, the easy narratives are easy and sometimes they should be made fun of from whatever side you want to come from. Anyway, um, I, is there I anything really else? Go ahead. So, yeah. I, I, I found it really interesting to just do this project, you know, both the books, you know, the, the mid 19th century Russian thinkers project that we just did today, <laughs> because of course, one of the things, you know, we're talking a lot about socialism versus capitalism today, like in politics, right? Totally. And without making this the bills politics hour, cause I don't want to do that. I've been thinking a lot about these questions a lot lately and sort of reevaluating my own sort of political commitments and, you know, so on and so forth as I, right. not so much reevaluating as realizing what things I was actually committed to and how those aren't necessarily, the, you know what I mean? Like, yes, I've always yep. been sort of libertarian, but I realized it wasn't really for the reasons other people are libertarian. And maybe what I actually am is a libertarian socialist. I don't know. Right. Like maybe those <laughs> were actually where the commitments I had. You know right. what I mean? Like maybe, yeah. like, maybe actual politics haven't changed that much really, but that's where, anyway. And so I've been thinking about, these issues a lot lately and what's interesting is some of these guys had come up as people i should get around to reading in that sort of lane you know what i mean like Same. i said Bakunin comes up in discussions around like anarcho-syndicalism and such and i'm not saying that's what i believe but i mean those sort of re like related philosophies and so it was interesting to do this project right now because it felt very timely even as on the other hand it's the silliest thing in the world like it's a bunch of guys who wrote from 1840 to 1860 about how the tsar is bad <laughs> right like that's not directly relevant yeah <laughs> But I, I don't know. I thought this was an interesting project, and also, you know, I was thinking about, you know, where do we these these sort of uh, you know Berlin talks about these places in like 1840 with all these brilliant people yelling at each other in these sort of restaurants and stuff and, and writing in these these journals. I was like, Wait, do we do that anywhere? And I realized, oh my god, it's it's Twitter. It's Twitter. It's Twitter. And <laughs> I was thinking about like leftist Twitter, which I don't know much about, and how what a funny place it is, but also how similar it feels to me as some of these things you know like if you really get into to proper leftist twitter right not liberal twitter but like leftist twitter where there's right. a lot of podcasts people argue about and you know like liz Brunig is on the right side of this group right you know what i'm saying like the yeah. right wing side of this group and 
like all the arguments about who's being sufficient, like they're arguing about what praxis is and all yelling about all the different who's sufficiently committed to the revolution and so on. I'm just like, man, this is the same thing. I could grab these folks and throw them into 1845. And assume, assuming they figured out how to speak 19th century Russian, they'd feel right at home. <laughs> like, no, there's, there's a, there's definitely a, bad. <laughs> there's a, there's like a, there's a production of coast of utopia waiting to happen where it is just um, a series of DSA meetings. And I think that yeah. would be like a great update on this. Cause it's actually, there's a, a magazine I just started subscribing to called the point mag. Um, and it did this last, the last issue it did was on socialism and the, the lead essay, which was like 17,000 words and like legitimately needed to be edited much more than it was, but it was good. And it was, it was a robust, um, not robust. It was a thorough overview of our moment of socialism from someone who is like, he's a little younger than both of us. Um, and he's like an active DSA sort of intellectual. And he talks about like the Jacobin socialites who are like all about bread and power or whatever it is. And of course, like um, he calls them, what does he call them? Um, the identitarians <laughs> who right. like have right all of these like sort of identity uh, politics they want to graft into socialism and that they, there are these like really intense fights at DSA meetings about how to accomplish the socialist goal and even like you're kind of getting at like what it means to like sort of like basically how far do you go before you proclaim victory as far as democratic slow socialism versus like actual maybe uh what someone would call like kind of a more pure socialism right um or, you know i, I don't want to get into it myself but i think that these internecine fights they're definitely happening and i agree with you i actually <laughs> it's one of the few times i feel i feel like old and bummed they're definitely happening on on twitter and i the only good thing about like twitter is that um it does get you to more long form stuff because i do feel like newsletters and podcasts um, you know, like the intellectual dark web, which has been shorthand for, I feel like libertarians for a while now, there's definitely a counter sort of intellectualism happening on the left, which, you know, it's, it's totally because of sort of, um, this free use media that you and I are using right now. Right. Um, and it's like, it's like these little magazines, like the bell, right. These people just putting stuff out there that's off the mainstream, which I think is, yeah, it's an interesting corollary. Um, well, I think all these guys are always throwing together pamphlets that, you know, they're just random 24-year-olds right. who are like, I'm going to start a publication. And yes. of course, we do that with blogs. And of course, what is Current Affairs? Current Affairs is a, which is a magazine I like a lot. I, I don't yeah. I think you're at least aware of it. You know, some random 25-year-old Harvard guy started running it out of like New Orleans it's, he, and he just made up a big, uh, dramatic sounding name for it on the assumption that people would think it was an established periodical. <laughs> and, like, it's no, such it, a mid-19th century <laughs> Russian thing to do. And also, yeah, it works. Every so often you get people on Twitter yelling about how current affairs has really fallen down since like when they were a kid. I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So, no, I, I, I yeah, I totally, I mean, I, I don't want to belabor it partly because, um, partly because it does a disservice to maybe like, you know, this, this, the actual lives of serfs at stake and, and not to like minimize our own moment, but it, it's, you know, like it is hard to make the analogy too concrete, but I, I agree as far as, um, there's a weird crossover, not just of like how people are having arguments about politics right now in this moment, but actually like the literal content of what they're arguing feels similar at times to what we just read. Um, it's a good time to read, you know, it's a good time to read Russian thinkers, people. This is just a yep. long advertisement for a book that I didn't finish and for a play Bill didn't like. 
<laughs> well, to be clear, I'm glad I read the play. Like, it's not, I, it wasn't one of those things where I was like, I'm only reading this because Joel's going to be mad at me if I don't. Like, I, I'm glad I read it. I'm glad I finished it. There was definitely really good stuff in it. But can I, can I say the last thing I want to say mean about this yes. play? Yes, yes. And I think this is indicative of the other thing I, I feel about it. The play literally ends with some people running around and doing, like, a, a speech from Herzen, which doesn't matter. I mean, it does, but it's not relevant to the point here. And then some sort of pleasant dialogue between, like, the daughter and the father. And then thunder and someone saying, there's going to be a storm. Which I really felt was very high school English for... Oh, totally happened. Yes. And this is... I I have this sort of... I want to be careful here, but there's a thing about, like, literary fiction it does where it thinks it can't... Like, it, it, it forgets to ever be subtle because it thinks it's very smart. And, it, and, of course, genre fiction does stuff like this all the time, too. But literary fiction does this where, like, I'm doing a literary project, and therefore I can hit something right in the face with a hammer, and everyone will be like, oh, cool. That wasn't really boring and basic. It was literary. <laughs> <laughs> and that's... I felt this way several times in these plays, is that it really wasn't as smart as it thought it was, but everyone was willing to put up with it because it was a project about mid-19th century Russian thinkers, right? But, like... If I had done that, I mean, I don't write novels, but if I did that at the end of, like, a, a fantasy novel, everyone would be like, okay, Bill, sure, yeah, there's a storm coming in. Is it the Orc Horde? Is that the storm? Good job, Bill. <laughs> and I felt like someone should have said that to Tom Stoppard here. Um, anyway, so that's my sort of final mean thing to say about this play by this guy who's just infinitely smarter than I am, and, yeah. So. No, it's, yeah, no, he's <laughs> he's an amazing writer, but actually where, um, you know where uh, all of his weaknesses are most apparent are in the screenplays he writes um he wrote shakespeare in love which i hate. i forgot about that <laughs> yeah, i hate that one he wrote the uh he wrote the adaptation for um Keira knightley's uh anna Karenina, which i didn't hate but it was like it, it has this it has this theater conceit which is like uh tom <laughs> it seems like maybe <laughs> like you just did this because you're a playwright and not because like it helps you know, like give any kind of meaning to the story beyond what already is there. Um, so I, so it's funny cause actually I, I think, um, I think he's a great playwright and one of like one of the, I mean, from what I've read and what I've read about him, one of our great living playwrights, but um, he actually, I think he has this temptation toward cheesiness because I, I don't think he's super comfortable with like plot. Like he jokes about Arcadia, which I love. He said, I, I lifted the plot from, uh, the book Possession, which is true. He really did. It's like two academics who discover like this connection to a romantic poet and they're locked in a house together doing research. That's the plot of Possession and of Arcadia. <laughs> and so, yeah, I actually do think there's a way in which he does, he's kind of, he, he, because maybe he's doing such highfalutin stuff, he thinks idea-wise, he settles for these cheesy moments because he thinks he's making some kind of contrast happen, which is definitely not true with a storm like there's a storm coming i could not believe that was the last line of the play there's a storm coming isn't that like what they say in uh the uh, phantom menace <laughs> my bones hurt I there's a think storm so. coming. <laughs> yeah <laughs> like that's you know come on come on yeah anyway I but know. i anyway all i'll say is <laughs> not in total contradiction to you but mostly maybe in counterpoint i i really love these plays all three of them but i i am with you that Okay, I liked all three of them. I loved the first play. Um, that play, I, I could stand behind no matter what, I think. No, and again, to be clear, I, I liked the first play quite a bit. Not, you know, it wasn't perfect, uh, but I, I definitely 
liked the first play, which I'm sure also informed my frustration with the other two because I was like, I thought you had something here. Again, I'm being dramatic. They're they're all they're all <laughs> but the first one I liked a lot more than the other two. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, overall, I would say the same. So. Um, all right. Well, uh, should we talk about what we're doing next? Yeah. No. Why don't you let the people know what's coming, Bill? <laughs> all right. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you all the next two things we're going to do because we deliberately didn't read the whole Berlin book for a good reason. Um, but the next thing we're going to do, which isn't going to be something like three months, uh, they're an eventful three months for both of us, I think, some of us more than others, so I'm not promising you a date, but we're going to do uh, Whitaker Chambers' book, Witness, which is a tome that was really, it was a bestseller, I think, in 52 yep. when it came out. Um, it's a sort of a foundational text in sort of what I might cheekily call like National Review conservatism, right? Um uh, like Reagan, I think, thought it was the best thing in the world. But it's also interesting, uh, so sort of for both its political place in sort of American politics, but also as a text in itself, neither of us have read it, but as I understand it, because it's about, uh, it's sort of a memoir that Chambers did. Whitaker Chambers was a communist spy, I mean, for lack of a better word, in the 30s, who became disenchanted with uh, Soviet communism, I think mostly as a result of Stalin's, you know, killing lots of folks. Um, and turned and became actually a conservative and famously testified at the Alger Hiss trial. In fact, like was the main witness, I think, at the Alger right. Hiss trial when they found that Alger Hiss, who was an important government official, I forget what, damn it, a secretary of something. I mean, like a, a significant uh, federal official was also accused of being a communist spy. And I think he was only charged with, uh, I think he was only convicted of perjury, but that it was, it was all about sort of Alger Hiss being this government official who was a communist spy. And so it should be an interesting read in its own right for just sort of what that's all about, but it also plays an important role in sort of American politics since then. Does that sound right? Does that sound fair? Yeah, that sounds exactly right. Um, so we're going to do that in about probably September or so. And then we're going to end this year with, uh, we're going to do one of the big ones here. We're going to go ahead and do war and peace, um, which I'm really excited about. I haven't read any Tolstoy. I know you've read some, and uh, as I understand it, you're pretty in love with what you've read. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, no, so it's, I mean, to, yes, it's more than fair. I mean, I, I've become uh, the ultimate cliche where I, I I think this is still true, but, like, if you told me I could only read one novel the rest of my life, I would, I would choose Anna Karenina. I'm almost positive. Um, I, and, and I've always loved, I mean, I've always loved sort of uh, <laughs> the idea of Russian literature, maybe more than Russian literature, but, I, I mean, in high school, I was definitely a, a Dostoevsky person, and uh, Brothers Kar Karamazov is also a top book. And so I was almost, like, mad that I read Anna Karenina and sort of was like, oh, um, I think this is better than Dostoevsky, which was sort of, sort of a huge <laughs> blow <laughs> to, to what I thought I knew about anything. Um, but weirdly enough, I've, I've held off reading War and Peace, not necessarily just for our podcast, but um, I'm almost, like, worried, you know, that, like, I know of at least one critic that you and I both like who thinks Anna Karenina is also the perfect novel and who does not like War and Peace. Um, and that's, <laughs> I, I don't want that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we're going to put it on a podcast and so everyone's going to know how, what I, you know, if it, if it does happen. It'll be great. Um, so I'm excited to read War and Peace. The only big Russian thing I've read is Crime and Punishment, but I love Crime and... I haven't read it in years, but Same. I have historically love loved it. Crime and Punishment. Yeah. Uh, so, and of course, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy are not the same guy at all, but I have some tolerance and some love for big Russian stuff, so I'm excited to read it. And of course, uh, in the Isaiah Berlin book we both read, there are two chapters 
which are very much about Tolstoy and War and Peace in particular. So we both skipped those, and we'll read them sometime closer to there. I have no idea if we'll talk about them on the podcast, but I'm just letting you know I didn't just not read the whole book, all right? I I, 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 <laughs> I just didn't read the whole book, I should confess. I will probably this week finish it, but I just, you know, life is life happens, okay? The people who listen to this, it's, it's difficult. Yeah, no, life happens. Um, we've got a couple other short things we might try to fit in at some point in the next six months but as always those are not going to be scheduled they're just going to happen Um, but at the very least we're going to do like I said Whitaker Chambers Witness September-ish and then Tolstoy's War and Peace December-ish and yeah I hope you you guys join us it's been pretty fun so far I mean at this point I think we're you made this point already but we're, uh, we're, uh, we're, we're pretty well on our way to just being a big Russian read cast um yeah <laughs> which, which i mean i because i would even kind of include black lamb and gray falcon because it's not about russia but it's definitely about like the southern slavic <laughs> uh yeah. people and, and the russian empire plays a big part in some of that history and i feel like that launched us into this sort of historical look at um the collision of socialism with various parts of the last 200 years which is basically I mean, what's what Black Lamb and Gray Falcon should have been about in some ways, um, since that's what the region became. But I'm kind of excited to just round it off with the big daddy of, you know, Russian books. And also, ooh, also, Bill, um, they're releasing uh, the War and Peace movie that's been, like, unfindable for years. It's like four hours. It's the Criterion Collection. Uh, we should also watch that. You can actually we should it out absolutely of the do that. Yeah, but just so it's yeah. going to be, it's. I'm so excited to watch that. So we should. We don't have to talk about it, but we should watch that. No, we absolutely should. That's a good point. Uh, so yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't know as I have anything else. Do you have anything else? Oh, I had. I had one thing. Very silly thing. So there's a lot going on in Stoppard's uh, stage directions. I'm sorry. This. I just. I really wanted to say this. Uh, some of the stage directions are like this is who this person is, which. I wondered if that was, you know, I, how well that would translate onto the stage, but clearly it's just context for how, so the actors know how to, you know, so that's fine. The stage directions are great. My favorite is on page 183 of my copy. I guess I have no idea if we have the same copy. Herzen's giving a speech to, to Georg Herwig, who later on is going to be um, stopping his wife, but isn't yet. And Herzen gives a speech about his buddy Nick Ogarev, and, you know, what is the largest number who can pull these tricks off of these, you know, I, I think it's smaller than these utopian communities, and then we get a stage direction, Natalie enters wearing a hat. And then Herzen finishes his speech, and that's the end of the scene. And I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I, I actually think I totally missed that moment, but that's amazing. So I just, sorry, it's one other sort of random thing. I just, I want to know what the acting choices were there, because I can see a lot of different choices. One is just, yeah, she's wearing a hat, whatever, they're getting ready to leave. And one is that she comes in wearing some sort of ridiculous hat, and I just got to want to know what they did. Uh, there's no way to find that out, I think. So... Sorry, I, a, I actually I looked I looked into I, I looked into if the, if I could like see um, like the DVD of the Broadway show because oftentimes you know they record them and and whatnot and there is there is a tape of it and it but it's oh. in the, it's in the archive at the New York Public Library which you can only access for like research purposes in person. Um, oh, but it does exist. I mean, if some you know. Some pioneering PBS producer out there wants to turn it into a special. I just think that'd be a great idea, is all. I think absolutely. There's a real, real audience for that too. Real audience. Bill um, and I would definitely watch it. <laughs> I mean, okay, Joel would definitely watch it. <laughs> I would watch it. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, okay. so interesting yeah. play. Definitely worth reading. Uh, I didn't love it, but definitely worth reading. And uh, interesting people. I definitely also I put. 
I'm trying to. I'll try to see if I can find a copy of some of Hertzen's stuff in English. Some of it's kind of hard to find in English, is my understanding. But I will. I'd like to read that uh, memoir he wrote. The name of which is escaping me, but which the, everyone the, the, says the, is the, the other shore or something. Far. Uh, no, yeah. I think that's the novel. I think it's just my life and thought. I think. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and everyone. Like, I googled it, and everyone says it's phenomenal. So I think that would be worth reading at some point, if I can find Agreed. a good English copy of it. But I might take a break from the Russians and do some other stuff for now. Yeah, so that's what I have. Do you have any other <laughs> stage directions? No. Oh my gosh! I did have. I mean, that's I, my my book is scattered with with LOLs, but not from the stage directions usually. So I think I'm all out, man. Well, I think stage directions are the best. You know, exit pursued by a bear. It's a classic. Oh, for a unbeatable, unbeatable. So, all right. Well, all right, this man. has been fun. So, looking forward to next time. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks as always. All right, talk to you later. Bye. 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 thanks to Lily Jarvis and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their song Water Song for our podcast. You can find both of them on SoundCloud if you'd like to hear more of their music. Please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or any other podcasting service, and, uh, you know, we'll see you next time.